demise of the podcast with Patrick Attaway. That's my podcast where I discuss writing. Specifically today, Brett Easton Ellis' writing as we get back into Lunar Park. Before we start that, I have my usual ablutions on the podcast to perform. Just some, you know, minor talking points. As always, I want to remind you that if you would like to support the podcast, you may do so by buying my books on Amazon. Just search for Patrick Attaway. And if you would like to support in a more passive manner, if you have Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, whatever the hell you want to do, just stream the music of Lurking Vowel. That is the music that you hear on each episode of the podcast, composed and recorded by me, under the name Lurking Vowel. Lurking around the corner, and vowel as an A-E-I-O-U. And I use this podcast as a means to help promote my writing, sure. But I don't, you know, make the entire podcast about me, obviously, but it's my podcast. And on that note, I want to talk about the current state of authors on social media and Reddit. Reddit counts as social media, but it's been on my mind because I... I read some stuff on Reddit when I get bored, when I'm, you know, sitting in a restaurant or in the car or something. For those of you unaware or simply forgotten, I used to have a Twitter account that had 13,000 followers. And I promoted my writing on it, but most of the people who were following me were doing so because of the quote-unquote supportive writing community, which is made-up nonsense. There is no writing community. As my friend Zev Good said, support is an active verb, and retweeting and responding with random affirmations to people on Twitter is not supporting their writing. It is cheering from the sidelines, and it's not really serving much of a purpose. However, what does support writers is actually buying their work, telling your friends about it, posting about it on social media. That helps a lot, because whenever I hear about someone breaking through because of TikTok, it's not because of their TikTok channel most of the time. It's because someone on TikTok... Some influencer of some kind has mentioned their book. They said, oh my God, you have to read this book. It's great. Don't get me wrong. I was able to build an audience on Twitter. I was able to sell a lot of books because of Twitter. But as I found, I would kind of rather sell a few books because of my podcast and some giveaways on Reddit, which I don't think I'm going to do anymore. And maybe some, you know, Facebook friends or whatever. Then have a bunch of people download it for free uh, because of Twitter. Or, you know, just retweet the thing thousands of times but not actually purchasing it. Whether it be 99 cents or $10. You know, it doesn't matter to them. They're not going to want it unless it's free anyway. All that to say is that there's an interesting element of people on Reddit specifically, who think that they can make up rules and govern other indie authors, which 
I think I've mentioned this before, but I've definitely mentioned it on social media. There is no such thing as a rule book, a set of rules or laws for indie authors because you are independent. You make up the rules for yourself. You don't need to rely on random people that you don't know online to tell you what to do with your book. You don't need random people online to tell you what to write. What indie authors and professional, traditionally published authors need is professional critique from people who actually studied how to do so. Not random people online who think that their Amazon review history means something. But one aspect that I can agree with is that writers should not be engaging with their negative reviews online. Now, I'm not saying this because I think that it's a rule that everyone should follow. It's simply something that I think, okay? Because it extends beyond that, really. We don't need authors on Reddit or any form of social media acting like they are authorities on anything. Unless you are someone who has published and gotten millions of dollars from your writing. Unless you're someone who has a PhD in writing or English or literature. What qualifies you other than a few books that you may have published on Amazon or through a small press or even through a bigger publisher? Because I've seen... Plenty of authors who have sold barely any books through traditional publishing means try to act like they're the authority on how things work. And it's one thing to have your own blog. It's one thing to have a podcast. I have a podcast. That's what I use the podcast for, is to broadcast my opinions and thoughts into the world. And if people want to listen to it, great. But getting in writing groups or on subreddits, as an author, as a means to promote yourself, because that's what it's all about, really. Whenever someone is on Reddit and they're posting on under their own name or their author name, it's for the sake of self-promotion. Even if they're just offering advice, which, you know, some people do ask for advice, and it's fine to give people who ask for advice advice. But most of the time, it's purely masturbatory. Quite frankly, unless I've heard of you and I respect your opinion, I'm not going to ask for your opinion. It's not going to stop you from giving it to me, obviously. But this is another reason why I have no interest in engaging on social media with potential readers or other authors anymore. Because I don't care about their opinions. I don't want to hear them. That's not to say that if I'm friends with someone, I don't want their opinion on my work or I don't want their opinion on my podcast or something I said on the podcast. Sure. But I'm actively engaging in a mutually beneficial platonic relationship with that person. The issue with authors trying to participate in some quote unquote community online is the same as it is with musicians. In my experience, they all want to think that they're the best at doing something they all want to promote what they're doing. And if they don't have anything to promote, they're going to spend their time putting down people who do have something to promote. Unless it aligns with what they believe is correct form. 
when I used to try promoting my music online on message boards and etc., I would have older musicians telling me what they thought I was doing wrong, telling me I suck, um, demeaning me. Sometimes I received death threats, all because they didn't agree with what I was doing or they thought my music sucked. And it's one thing to just say, you know, your music's not for me, or even, you know, you suck. That doesn't bother me. It doesn't really bother me anymore when people, you know, say harsh things out of nowhere either because I've been there, done that. But it's all the same. No matter what art form you're choosing to express yourself, whenever you try to engage with the community and promote yourself, it's purely masturbatory and there are going to be people who are going to troll you over it. And for you aspiring authors out there who are listening to this, and maybe you don't agree, I don't care, but I appreciate you listening But take comfort in the fact that Brady Stanellis doesn't give a shit about what critics say, what people he knows have to say, and also he doesn't care about getting bad reviews in general because he says he's never been well-reviewed by critics. He's always been well-received by audiences and in sales, but literary critics and entertainment weekly style critics have never respected him the way that he deserved. We're skipping ahead to chapter 11 today. Yes, well, actually, Friday, I went through the book and I decided where we would start today. I'm recording on a Sunday. And chapter 11 is titled Detective. Everything was suddenly a mirage. I drove Robbie and Sarah home while replaying the first time I met Amy Light, a girl staring at me blinking, blankly, from across a campus party. The cocaine I'd snorted in the dingy bathroom giving me a burly, reckless confidence, the ensuing conversation about her thesis during which I realized I could probably control her, even though she was throwing off the opposite vibe. I located it in the yawn after she told me its title, Destination Nowhere. And it was in the studied indifference, the ho-hum, calculated laughter, her boredom, all just defense mechanisms. But I was patient and was so adept at pretending to be interested in women I simply wanted to sleep with that I had perfected my own performance. The devil grin, the deep and persuasive nodding, the off-cuff comments about other girlfriends of my famous wife. Ultimately, everything was an act. We were on a stage. The cup of beer she sipped from was a prop, and the subsequent foam crusting her upper lip caused my eyes as if rehearsed to hone in on her mouth, and when she realized I was gazing at her as she swayed toward and complimented a sculpture made of wire hanging in the corner of Booth House. So, this opening paragraph, which is still going on to the next page, mind you, we're really seeing a great example of Brady Stanellis as a character versus the real Brady Stanellis, because he's talking about gaslighting women and putting on a performance so that he can sleep with them. And he's also talking about potentially controlling her because he has a power dynamic there where as a instructor at the university where she's studying, he can influence the outcome of her thesis potentially. We're going to skip ahead for the sake of everything. I scrolled down the blank page until Amy's phone stopped ringing and her message played out. 
I clicked off the cell after the beep when I noticed that the light on my answering machine was blinking. I reached over and pressed play. Mr. Ellis, this is Detective Donald Kimble. I'm with the Midland County Sheriff's Department, and I'd like to talk to you about something that's, well, rather urgent. And so we should probably talk as soon as you can. Pause. Static. If you want, we can meet here in Midland, though, considering what I want to talk to you about, I think it might be best if I dropped by your place. He left a cell phone number. Again, please call me as soon as you can. I finished the mug of vodka and poured myself another. When I called Kimball back, he didn't want to discuss whatever this was over the phone, and I didn't want to discuss it in Midland, so I gave him our address. Kimball, and he could be at the house in 30 minutes. Kimball said he could be at the house in 30 minutes, but Kimball showed up 15 minutes after we hung up, a discrepancy which forced me to realize vaguely, uneasily, that this was probably more important than I'd first thought. I was hoping for a welcome distraction from fretting about Amy, but what Kimball presented me with was not the respite I was hoping for. I was drunk when he arrived. I was sober by the time he left. Now, if you're unfamiliar with American Psycho, the detective that's in that novel and also in the film, his name is Donald Kimball. In the film, he's played by William Defoe, And there's almost a, a concern in the novel and the movie as to whether or not Kimball really exists and what he believes about Patrick Bateman and in his role and um, disappearances and murders. And here we have kind of a similar vibe going. There is nothing much to notice about Donald Kimball. My age, vaguely handsome. I'd do him, I thought drunkenly, and then do what? Dressed casually in jeans and a Nike sweatshirt, cropped blonde hair, way far sunglasses he whipped off as soon as I opened the front door. And except for the nondescript sedan parked behind him at the curb, he could have passed for any one of the handsome, affluent suburban dads who resided in the neighborhood. I want to stop here for a second. When was the last time you met a man with natural blonde hair? Some of you listening might have natural blonde hair, but I can't remember the last time I had a conversation or was face-to-face with a man who was naturally blonde. And on top of that, we have an allusion to Brett Easton Ellis' real sexuality here. Almost as a joke. I do him, I thought drunkenly, and then do ellipses what? However, this might all be a reference to Kimball being fake, a fictional character. What can he really do with him? What singled him out was that he held a copy of American Psycho. It was frayed and yellowed and ominously dotted with post-its. We shook hands and I ushered him into the house and after offering him a drink, which he declined, led him to my office while I kept glancing at the copy of the book. When I asked if he wanted it signed, Kimball paused grimly, thanked me, and said he did not. I sat in my swivel chair and took little sips from the coffee mug. Kimball sat across from me on a sleek modern Italian couch that should have been on the other side of the room, but now had been moved beneath the movie poster for less than zero. My office had been rearranged yet again. While Kimball began talking, I drank the vodka and tried to understand why I was at a standstill about the room and the placement of the furniture within it. 
If you'd like to check in with the sheriff's department, feel f- please feel feel free to do so, Kimball was saying. I started paying attention. About what? About my being here, Mr. Ellis. Well, I'm assuming my publishing house made sure everything was in order, no? I mean, my editor didn't seem to think anything was unusual. I, I, I mean, if you are who you're saying then I'm prone to believe you. I'm a very trusting person. Unless you're a deranged fan and you're after my wife. You aren't, are you? Kimball smiled tightly. No, no, nothing like that. We knew your wife lived in town, but we weren't sure if you were here or in New York and if your publishing house simply gave us your business number and so, well, here we are. Do you get a lot of that? Crazy fans and stalkers and all that? At that moment, I instantly trusted him. Nothing too unusual, I said, searching my desk for the pack of cigarettes that was never there. Just the typical restraining order, you know, nothing too scary, just the average life of an average celebrity couple. Yes, that came out of my mouth. Yes, Kimball smiled awkwardly. He breathed in and leaned forward, still holding the book, studying me. I took another sip from the coffee mug and saw him open a brown notepad he was holding along with my book. So a detective is in my office with a copy of American Psycho, I rambled. I hope you liked it since I had some very special thing to say with that book. I tried to conceal a belch and failed. Well, I am a fan, Mr. Ellis, but that's not exactly why I'm here. So what's up then? He looked around at the opened notebook resting on his lap. It seemed as if he was reluctant to proceed, as if Kimball was still making up his mind about how much he should reveal in order to gain my compliance. But his demeanor suddenly changed and he cleared his throat. What I'm about to present you with will probably be upsetting, which is why I thought we should talk privately. I immediately reached into my pocket and popped a Xanax. Kimball waited politely. After a moment of throat clearing, I act out, I'm ready. Kimball now had his game face on. Recently, very recently, my colleagues and I became convinced that the theory about a case Midland County had been investigating for the last four months was in fact no longer a theory. I flashed on something and interrupted him. Wait, this isn't about the missing children, is it? No, Kimball said carefully. It's not about the missing boys. Both cases did begin around the same time or near the beginning of the summer, but we don't believe they're connected. I did not feel the need to tell Kimball that the beginning of summer was when I first arrived in this town. What's going on? I asked. Kimball cleared his throat. He skimmed a page in his notebook and then turned it over to inspect the next page. A Mr. Robert Rabin was killed on June 1st on Commonwealth Avenue at approximately 9.30 in the evening. He'd taken his dog out for a walk and was attacked on the street and stabbed randomly in his upper body area and and his throat was cut. Jesus Christ. There was no motive for the crime. It was not a robbery. Mr. Rabin had no enemies as far as we could ascertain. It was just a random killing. 
He was, we thought, simply at the wrong place at the wrong time. But there was something strange about the crime besides the viciousness of the attack and its apparent lack of motive. The dog he was walking was also killed. Another pause filled the office. That's also terrible, I finally said, guessing. The length of Kimball's next pause was painting the room with a distinct and palatable anxiety. It was a sharp A, he said. I paused, taking this in. That's, uh, even worse? I asked meekly and automatically took another sip of vodka. Well, it's a very rare breed of dog, and even rarer in this neck of the woods. I see. I suddenly realized that I had not hidden the vodka bottle. It was out in the open, sitting on my desk, half empty and with its top off. Kimball glanced at it briefly before looking down at a page in his notebook. Sitting across from him, I could make out the chart list, numbers, a graph. In the vintage edition of American Psycho, he said, on pages 164 through 166, a man is murdered in much the same way that Robert Rabin was. A pause in which I was supposed to locate something and make a connection. Kimball continued, the man in your book was also walking a dog. It was a Sharpay. Wait a minute, I automatically said, wanting to stop the fear that kept increasing as Kimball neared the information he wanted to impart. Yes? I stared at him blankly. When he realized I had nothing further to say, he looked back at his notes. A transient named Albert Lawrence was b blinded last December, six months before the Rabin murder. The case remained unsolved, but there were certain elements that kept bothering me. There were certain similarities that I couldn't quite put my finger on at first. The atmosphere in the room had flown past anxiety and was now officially entering into dread. The vodka was not going to work anymore and I tried to set the mug back on my desk without trembling. I didn't want to hear anything else, but I couldn't help asking, why? Mr. Lawrence had been inebriated at the time of the attack. In fact, he was passed out in an alley off Sutton Street in Coleman. Coleman, a small town about 30 miles from Midland. Mr. Lawrence's account was considered... Somewhat unreliable due to the amount of alcohol he'd, assume, he'd consumed, and we had very little to go on in the way of an accurate physical description of his assailant. Kimball turned a page. He said the man who attacked him was wearing a suit and carrying a briefcase, but he couldn't recall any physical characteristics to the man's face, his, his height, weight, hair color, etc., there had been a couple of articles about the case in the local press, but considering what was happening in Coleman at the time, the bomb scares and all the attention those were receiving, the attack on Mr. Lawrence didn't really register, even though there were some murmurings that the attack had been ro racially motivated. Racially motivated? Bomb scares? And Coleman? Where had I been last December?
either drugged out or in rehab, was all I could come up with. According to Mr. Lawrence, his assailant apparently used a racial epithet before leaving the scene. Kimball kept pausing, which I, I was now grateful for since it was helping me put to get myself back together after each new bite of information was handed out. So, this Mr. Lawrence was black? Another pause. Kimball nodded. He also had a dog a small mutt that the assailant also attacked. The assailant broke the dog's first front two legs. I did not want to, but the point of Kimball's visit was becoming clearer to me. Mr. Lawrence also had a history of mental illness and had been institutionalized various times, and since Midland County doesn't have a large black community, the theory that this crime was racially motivated didn't really play out, and the case remains unsolved. But again, there was something about it that kept bothering me. It seemed like I had read about this case before, and on pages 131 and 132 in American Psycho, a black homeless man was blinded. I murmured this to myself. Kimball nodded. And he had a dog that Patrick Bateman broke the legs of. In July, a Sandy Wu, a delivery boy for Chinese restaurant in Brigham, was murdered. Like Mr. Rabin, his throat was slashed. Did he have a dog? Kimball shifted uncomfortably and frowned, giving off the vibe that he did not think we were on the same track. But that wasn't true. I wanted to prolong the inevitable. He did not have a dog, but there was a detail that again took me back to American Psycho. Kimball pulled something from the notebook and reached forward to give it to me. A receipt from the restaurant called Ming's encased tightly in plastic The receipt was wrinkled, and now I swallowed, splattered lightly with brown flecks. On the other side, scrawled in ink, were the words, I'm gonna get you too, bitch. Kimball paused after I handed the slip back to him. This particular order was being delivered to the Rubenstein family. Kimball waited for my reaction which wasn't forthcoming. On pages 180 and 181, a delivery boy is killed in the same manner as Mr. Wu, as in the book. The assailant wrote the identical message that Patrick Bateman does on the back of the receipt. I closed my eyes and then tried to open them when I heard Kimball sighing. We, well, actually just me at that point, Backtrack to another case involving a Victoria Bell, an elderly woman who lived on Outer Circle Drive. She was decapitated. I knew the name. A bolt of clarity shot through me when I realized where Kimball was going with this. There is a Victoria Bell in American Psycho. Wait a minute. But this one was found in a motel off Route 50 just outside Coleman about a year ago. She had been stripped and placed in a bathtub and covered with lime. Wait, she, would, she was covered with limes? I exclaimed. 
No lime. It's a dissolvent, Mr. Ellis. I closed my eyes again. I did not want to go back to that book. It had been about my father, his rage, his obsession with status, his loneliness, whom I had transformed into a fictional serial killer. And I was not about to put myself through that experience again, of revisiting either Robert Ellis or Patrick Bateman. I had moved past the casual carnage that was so prevalent in the books I'd conceived in my 20s, past the severed heads and the soup made of blood and the woman vaginally penetrated with her own rib. Exploring that kind of violence had been interesting and exciting, and it was all very metaphorical anyway, at least to me at the moment in my life, when I was young and pissed off and had not yet grasped my own mortality, a time when physical pain and real suffering held no meaning for me. I was transgressive, and the book was really about style, and there was no point now in reliving the crimes of Patrick Bateman and the horror they'd inspired. Sitting in my office in front of Kimball, I realized that at various times I had fantasized about this exact moment. This was the moment that the detractors of the book had warned me about. If anything happened to anyone as a result of the publication of this novel, Brett Easton Ellis was to blame. I'm going to stop here for a moment to discuss this because a few episodes ago I actually read an essay that I had written about American Psycho and... Coincidentally, yesterday, when I was at the mall with my wife, I went inside Books A Million, and guess what they had in hardback? For the first time ever in my life, I found a hardback copy of American Psycho. And, of course, I bought it for myself for Christmas. It's the only thing that I've bought myself for the month. And it means a lot to me. This book is very important to me. But it's not about murderers. It's not about torturing women. It's not about torturing men. Most of the book has very little to do with the violence that is only in 15 pages out of the 400-page book. But that becomes the focal point for so many different people. It's kind of the focal point of the movie as well. And this is how I relate to Brett Easton Ellis in a sense. No one ever tried to stop me from writing or publishing Demise of the Trinity or Price of the Trinity. Those are both books that do rely on violence to a degree, but for the most part, they're about very different things. They're both also very influenced by Brett Easton Ellis, and you might even think that I misinterpreted American Psycho when I started writing these books. And here I am in my 30s. I am almost done with the second draft of a novel that doesn't really have violence in it. Nothing, you know, graphic. There are some scenes where violence is alluded to, but, you know, there aren't a bunch of people being murdered and stuff. And I started writing those books, Price and Demise, when I was still a teenager. And in the reviews for Demise in particular, people talk about the violence. It doesn't really bother me, but for that to be the focal point for an audience is unsettling to a degree because the books are about a lot more than that. If you haven't read the books, you should listen to the what 11 to 12 episode thing that I did on here where I read the entirety of Demise. 
you should actually go buy and read the book. But since, you know, we're all frugal here lately, you can listen to it for free on here with my commentary, of course. But in a sense, I'm not ashamed of those books at all, mind you. I think those books are great. But when you write something that has violence in it, like American Psycho, and people focus in on that violence, almost purposefully missing the point, it's disappointing, but it's also something that you have to live with for a while. And in the earlier episodes of the podcast, you can hear me grappling with it. At one point in an early episode, I kind of get exasperated and say, I'm just tired of the violence right now. And I was. But having written two novels that are completely divorced from those first four books that I wrote that have little to no violence in them at all, I'm wondering what the fuck I can do with my next book. (laughs) Maybe I should go back to writing about serial killers. Anyway. Gloria Steinem had reiterated this over and over to Larry King in the rent winter of 1991, and that's why the National Organization for Women had boycotted the book. In a small world filled with black ironies, Miss Steinem eventually married David Bale, the father of the actor who played Patrick Bateman in the movie. I thought the idea was laughable, that there was no one as insane and vicious as a fictional character out there in the real world. Again, I want to pause... This is self-referential again. In my first two novels, it is referenced that Patrick... Well, whoa. Brad Easton Ellis never gets to write any books after American Psycho because he's murdered by a feminist extremist group. Besides, Patrick Bateman was a notorious and unreliable narrator, and if you actually read the book, you could come away doubting that these crimes had even occurred. There were large hits, hence that they existed only in Bateman's mind. The murders and torture were in fact fantasies fueled by his rage and fury about how life in America was structured and how this had, no matter the size of his wealth, trapped him. The fantasies were an escape. This was the book's thesis. It was about society and manners and mores and not about cutting up women. How could anyone who read the book not see this? Yet because of the severity of the outcry over the novel, The fear that maybe it wasn't such a laughable idea was never far away. Always lurking was the worry about what might happen if the book fell into the wrong hands. Who knew what it could inspire? And after the killings in Toronto, it was no longer lurking. It was real. It existed. It tortured me. But that had been more than ten years ago, and a decade had passed without anything remotely similar happening. The book had made me wealthy and famous, but I never wanted to touch it again. Now that it all came rushing back, and I found myself in Patrick Bateman's shoes, I felt like an unreliable narrator, even though I knew I wasn't. Yet then I thought, well, had he? Although American Psycho doesn't have any real moments of fourth wall breaking, you could come away with it thinking, well, Patrick Bateman knows he has an audience. This book is not being narrated by someone who's just living his life. He's narrating it for the people reading it. 
And there is a difference, mind you. Kimball could tell I was trying to distract myself, that I was trying to wish it all away, and gently said, Mr. Ellis, you do understand where I'm going. Am I a suspect? I asked suddenly. Kimball seemed surprised. No, you're not. There was a tiny moment of relief that fled in an instant. How do you know I'm not? The night of June 1st, you were in a rehab clinic. And on the night Sandy Wu was murdered, you were giving a lecture at the college on the legacy of the Brat Pack in American literature. I swallowed hard and collected myself again. So this is obviously not a series of coincidences. We, that is, myself and the Midland Sheriff's Office, believe that whoever committed these crimes is actually following the book and replicating them. Let me get this straight, I swallowed again. You're telling me that Patrick Bateman is alive and well and killing people in Midland County? No, someone out there is copycatting the murders from the book, and in order. It's not random. It's actually fairly careful and very well planned, to the point where the assailant has even gone so far as to locate people, victims, with similar names or similar, if not exact, occupations. I was freezing. Nausea started sliding through me. You have got to be kidding me. This is a joke, right? It's no longer a theory, Mr. Ellis, was all Kimball would say, as if he was warning someone. Do you have any leads? Again, Kimball sighed. The big obstacle in terms of our investigation is that the crime scenes themselves, even with the fairly formidable amount of planning and time the killer spent on each one. They're immaculate. What does that mean? What does that mean when you say immaculate? Well, basically, forensics is baffled. No fingerprints, no hairs, no fibers, nothing. Like a ghost. That was the first thing I thought. Like a ghost. Kimball repositioned himself on the couch and then, looking at me directly, asked, Have you received any strange mail lately? Any kind of correspondence from a fan that would lead you to suspect that maybe something isn't quite right? Wait, why? You think this person might contact me? Do you think he's after me? I was unable to contain my panic and immediately felt ashamed. No, no. Please, Mr. Ellis, calm down. That doesn't seem to be where this person is heading. However, if you feel someone has contacted you in a way that's inappropriate or a violation of some kind, please tell me now. You're fairly sure whoever this is is not headed toward me? That's correct. Of course, anyone who has read this book before or has been listening along knows that Someone did inappropriately contact Brett earlier in the novel. It's this man named Clayton, who just so happens to have the same first name as Clay from Lesson Zero. And he showed up to the Halloween party from the opening chapter as Patrick Bateman. And then he goes to Brett's office and asks him to sign a copy of one of his books. The next victim in the book 
is Paul Owen. And, Kimball paused, there's a Paul Owen in Clear Lake. Clear Lake is only 15 miles from here, I murmured. Mr. Owen is now under heavy surveillance and police protection, and what we're hoping is that if anyone suspicious shows up, we'll be able to apprehend him. This is also why these connections between the crimes haven't been leaked to the press. At this point, that would only compromise the investigation, and of course, we hope he won't say anything either. For those of you who are unaware, Paul Owen is the character Paul Allen in the movie. Let's see Paul Allen's card. Try getting a reservation at Dorsey and now, you stupid bastard! We're going to skip ahead to chapter 16, which is The Wind. What page are we on? Uh, should be 239. The reason why I skip huge portions of the book is, for one thing, this is an audiobook podcast. Another thing is, I'm trying to mo- motivate some of you to go out there and read the book. But, you know, I'm also kind of casually editing things out for the sake of the podcast. You know, we can't read the whole thing on here. That would be ridiculous. This is titled The Wind. Clayton who? The secretary asked. Is that the last name or the first? It was almost three, and after driving aimlessly through town, replaying the video in my head, I called Kimball again and left another message asking him to meet me in my office at at the college. I promise I can read where I would be hanging out for the rest of the afternoon. So in the previous chapter, Brett received a bunch of emails, and they all had video attachments to them, and it was a rather chilling experience. My plan wasn't to tell him the specifics of what I had seen. I just wanted to place Clayton in his mind as someone to watch, the possible suspect, the fictional character, the boy who was rewriting my book. And I kept my tone even and natural, reiterating hanging out twice, so he wouldn't think I was losing it. Then I called Alvin Mendelssohn's extension and was surprised when he answered. He spoke coldly to me as we uselessly defined our territory in a very brief discussion that confirmed Amy Light had not shown up for either of her two scheduled tutorials and also had failed to notify him of her absentia, to which he added, She's a very impractical young woman. And then I countered with, why? Because she's not doing her thesis on Chaucer? To which he replied, don't take yourself so seriously. And then I said, that's not an answer, Mendelssohn, before we both hung up on each other. Needing to be bolder than I felt, I summoned up the nerve to stand in the admissions office in front of the desk of a blandly good-humored young secretary perched next to a computer and asked her to look up a student's name and any contact information regarding how I could reach him since I admitted regretfully I had to cancel an appointment. But even in my distracted state, I realized once I'd croaked the word Clayton that I didn't have anything else. He had not supplied a last name, but the campus was small and I assumed that Clayton might be rare enough that he would be easy to track down regardless. The the secretary thought it was odd that I didn't know the last name of one of my students, so I blithely waved the hand around when she inquired about this lapse, the gesture explaining away my absent-mindedness, my busy and special life, how unreliable the famous writer was. For some reason, we shared a wooden laugh that momentarily relaxed me. 
She seemed used to this. The faculty of the college apparently made up other frantic misfits who forgot the names of their own students. I dazed out and realized that I was nearing a period in my life when I was seeking assistance from people half my age. I watched the secretary swing toward the computer, her hand sweeping over the keyboard. Well, I'll enter the name and we'll do a search. I'm a big fan, Mr. Ellis. I spelled the name, corrected her, and she typed it in and then tapped a key and sat back. I could tell from the expression on her face that the screen might as well have been blank. I was about to lean over and scan the screen with her when she tapped a few more keys. I realized things were becoming complicated when I noticed her sighing repeatedly. I'm not finding anything with Clayton in it, she said. He said he was a freshman, I added unhelpfully. Could you check again? I mean, look, if he had a last name, Mr. Ellis, nothing would come up in the student directory because there's no Clayton listed anywhere. This is extremely important. I understand that, but there's no Clayton listed anywhere. Please check one more time. The secretary smiled wryly at me. It was actually a sympathetic expression. Mr. Ellis, and it was maddening that desirable young women are now calling me this. The school directory, do you know what that is, has confirmed that there is no one with the name Clayton, either as a first name or a last name or a middle name, attending this college. It wasn't just the information, but her tone that shocked me into silence. I should have known the moment I walked into admissions that finding Clayton was a remote and unlikely thing. The secretary's search had answered something, but another false beginning was opening up. I slowly stepped away from the desk as the secretary continued studying me as if I were dwindling into another world. Since I was not offering any explanation for this waste of time, her face became taut with impatience, and then she simply regarded me quizzically and said, Mr. Ellis, do you feel okay? But her concern was utterly superficial, even if she genuinely tried to make it seem unintended. I could let this challenge diminish me. I had to take this information and do something with it. I now knew for fact something about this boy who had called himself Clayton and had appeared in my office and in the front seat of Amy Light's car and my own home. And now I knew that he had lied to me and even worse, I felt with a prenometary shiver that whatever intentions he had were not fulfilled yet. I was lightheaded and my muscles ached from lack of sleep and I hadn't eaten anything except a cracker smeared with cheese in the Buckley Library the night before. And as I walked out of the admissions office, I stared at the commons, the flat center of campus. It had been warm that morning and the air dead and still and now a breeze caught the rust-colored leaves carpeting the field, revealing the green lawn hidden beneath them. The questions were too myriad and outlandish to systematically and rationally contemplate. It was a Tuesday. That was the only fact. I couldn't stand on the steps of the emissions building, lost in spacing out on a lone scrawny, scrawny dog sniffing around the perimeter, parameters of Booth House. 
a kerchief tied around its neck. I took off in the direction of the student parking lot to see if I could locate either the cream-colored 450SL or Amy Light's BMW. It was the only plane at the moment that could move me out of my stupor. In the distance, the sun glanced off the white dome of the art building, and the sky started darkening. Indian summer vanished rapidly that afternoon. Of course, when I read that, I think about my own college, which is where I was reading this book. I remember actually finishing this book while my ex-girlfriend was taking an exam in the old business building, which is near the quad where a scene like this would take place. College campuses are so romanticized, and it's hard not to fall in love with them when you're there. I mean, I blame 25% of the reason why I went back to grad school on the campus. This idealized notion that this is where I belong, that this is a home to me, this is a wonderful place where I want to be, when the institution itself is a harsh and unforgiving bastardization of something we call education. And at a certain point in time, when you get to be a certain age, you're no longer the same age as the students surrounding you. You don't seem as if you belong there anymore. And so you don't really hang out there when you're not in class, if you still go to classes. You know, I really didn't spend a whole lot of time on campus when I was in grad school. I would have liked to, and I always went to the library when I had an opportunity to for research purposes, but the last time I went to the library was to turn books back in. You know, I didn't spend hours in there studying like I used to in undergrad because I have a job, I have a wife, I have responsibilities now that I just didn't have back then, and so that life that I had is dead. We're going to skip ahead to something a little less dreary regarding murder. And this is a conversation between Kimball and Brett in his office. Finally, Kimball cleared his throat. I got your messages, and I'm sorry it took me so long to get back to you. But you didn't sound too upset, And, but I think I may have some news, I said sitting down again. But you don't. Yes, that's what you said, Kimball nodded slowly. But um, he trailed off, distracted by something. Look, Mr. Ellis, something happened in Stoneboat last night. He sighed, deciding whether to continue. And I think it changed the direction of the investigation that I talked to you about on Saturday. What happened? Kimball looked at me flatly. There was another murder. I took this in and nodded and then forced myself to ask, Who was it? We don't know. I don't understand. There were only body parts. He unclasped his hands, opening them, revealing his palms. My eyes were drawn to Kimball's fingernails. He bit them. It was a woman. He kept sighing. I've been busy all day with this, and I didn't want to bother you about it because the crime deviated from the theory we had. Meaning... It wasn't in the book, he said. The homicides we investigated in Midland County starting this past summer, we thought, were ultimately connected to the book, and well, 
This one wasn't. This was a serious deviation. Immediately I was cut off. I was on my own. Telling Kimball about Clayton wouldn't mean anything. It didn't matter now. It already seemed as if Kimball was dismissing me. It was obvious from the expression on his face that he didn't trust the storyline anymore. The crime scene, the murder that shattered the pattern at the Orsic Motel just off the interstate in Stoneboak, was insanely elaborate. There were ropes and body parts positioned in front of mirrors. The head and hands were missing. The walls were splashed with blood. There was evidence that a blowtorch had been used at one point, and the bones in both arms had been broken before the skin had been peeled off, and a woman's torso was found in the shower stall, and a huge drawing in the victim's blood of a face adorned the wall above the gutted bed with the words, I'm back, also dripping in blood, scrawled below. There were, again, no prints. No one even knows how the room became occupied. The maid, she, Kimball's voice was fading. It was getting dark in the office and I reached over and switched on the lamp and the green glass shade sitting on my desk, but it failed to illuminate the room. As I listened to Kimball, my heart was whirling erratically. Though the crime scene had not been contaminated, the print could not even come up with smudges or smears. And technicians found no signs of footprints or fibers, and serologists inspecting the spatter trajectories and the defensive wounds had found no blood samples other than the victims, which was exceedingly rare considering the brutality of the murder. The neighborhood had already been canvassed, and a psychic was now being consulted And crushing everything was the fact that this crime did not exist in my book. My armpits were damp with sweat. I wasn't relieved. Because even though no crime like this was featured in the vintage edition of American Psycho, there was still a detail that bothered me. There was a suggestion in Kimball's description of something I had once come across. Immediately... My eyes refocused on the footprints as Kimball's voice drifted in and out. His stoicism was supposed to be comforting and I realized he thought he was taking away something that was ruining my life and that I should be relieved. The more he spoke, the deeper my fear increased because what could I tell him at this point? Kimball waited patiently after he asked what it was I had called about, and he was unrewarded by my silence. My face actually reddened when I realized I had nothing to offer him, no proof, not even a name, just a young man who resembled me. And when he saw that I had nothing to give him, that I was hiding, he retreated back into trying to process what had hit him at the Orsic Motel earlier that day. He had no questions to ask me. I had no answers to give him. A train of futile incidents had led us here. That was all. Nothing was connected anymore. And while we both fell into our respective silences, my mind started widening with possibilities I couldn't share with the detective. A boy was making a book come true, but I did not have the name of this boy. 
He had been in my house. He had been in Amy Light's car. He was involved with the girl I was involved with. And he had been in a video that was made the night my father died 12 years ago. But don't forget, in the video, he is the same age as he is now. That's the crowning detail. That's the admission that will really make this case fly. That's the thing that will be used against you. In the end, it was that fear that Kimball might view me as insane that was the most legitimate reason I had for not saying anything. Kimball was calling to me from someplace far away, and I faded back into the room we both were in. He was already standing, and his eyes interlocked with mine as I got to my feet, but there was a distance. And then, after a few promises to keep each other posted in case anything came up, I walked into the door, and then Kimball was gone. Once I closed the door, I noticed the manila envelope next to the footprint stamped in ash. Resting on the floor, an object I hadn't noticed before. My mind struggled. Anything was possible now. I stared at it for a long time, breathing hard. I approached it not with the casual wariness I usually felt when the student was handing me a story, but with a specific trepidation that spasmed throughout my body. I had to force myself to swallow before picking it up. I opened the envelope. It was a manuscript. It was called Minus Numbers. Which, by the way, people, less than zero, minus numbers... The name Clayton was scratched in the corner of the title page. I don't know how long I stood there, but suddenly I needed to talk to Kimball. When I rushed to the window, I saw the taillights of Kimball's sedan rolling down College Drive, and in the distance, farther in the valley, the searchlights of an army helicopter sweeping over the deserted forest. By now, it was completely dark out. But what was I going to tell Kimball? The paralysis returned when I realized I wanted to ask him something. You will drive to Amy Light's studio, which is located half a mile from the college in a series of perfunctory brick bungalows that house off-campus students and brackets a parking lot surrounded by pines. Her car will not be there. You will cruise through the parking lot searching for it, but you will never find it, and your palms will actually be sweating, which will cause your grip to slide off the steering wheel. The moon will be a mirror reflecting everything it looms over, and the smell of burning leaves will permeate the night air as you briefly reflect on a day that has passed too quickly. You will park in her empty space and get out of the Porsche, and you will notice her lights are off, and the only noise will be the hooting of owls and the cries of coyotes lost in the hills of Sherman Oaks, emerging from their caves and answering one another as they lunge toward lit pools of water, and always with you... Everywhere will be the constant scent of the Pacific. I think that at the end of the day, the thing that makes me keep coming back to Brett Easton Ellis is that he's simply a great writer. And he's able to delve into these spurts of high-quality prose and thoughtfulness that you may not actually expect from him, especially if you've only read American Psycho or... Listen here, even though those both have some brilliant writing in them, he's a very capable writer. And if you look at his bibliography as a whole, he's very good at writing prose. And I was thinking about his career the other night and what attracts me to him as an author 
And part of it is that he is seemingly isolated from everyone else. He doesn't try to align himself with other authors. He was part of that brat pack in the 80s, but it wasn't necessarily of his own choosing. And I I don't even know if he's still friends with Jay McIerney. You know, I'm going to keep saying his name wrong, by the way. There's this odd sensibility that all your favorite authors should be friends or they should be mortal enemies when many times they're indifferent to another to one another and much like Bukowski Ellis is kind of on his own island there's no one else out there like him there are a lot of imitators but there's no one else that accomplishes what he does in his writing my wife is watching Priscilla in the other room, a movie that she saw in the movie theater three or four times. She saw it twice with me and twice by herself, so that'd be four times. And I can hear Santana in the other room, Santana being the Kenny G of lead guitar players. Uh, which, by the way, I think Kenny G has some fucking bops. But I want to read this chapter, Spago, just because it kind of grounds things in a different light. And then we'll be done for the week and we'll, we'll delve back into this novel next week. Spago had appeared off Main Street last April, almost 20 years to the day after the original had opened above Sunset Boulevard in L.A. And where I first took Blair in the cream-colored 450SL after an Elvis Costello concert at the Greek Theater. And at a window table overlooking the city... I told her that I'd been accepted by Camden and that I was leaving for New Hampshire at the end of August, and she fell silent for the rest of the the dinner. Blair, a girl from Laurel Canyon who actually quoted Fleetwood Mac's landslide on her senior page in the Buckley yearbook, which made me silently cringe at the time, but now, 20 years later, the couplet she chose moved me to tears. When Jane and I entered the restaurant, it was already half empty. We were seated seated at a window, window table, and our waiter had shiny hair and was midway through reciting the specials when he recognized Jane, at which point his drone became falsely chipper. His timid, his timidity, 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 timidity is not a word. I don't want to believe that it's a word. We should just call him timid, shall we? Some words just don't need to be used. I noticed this. <laughs> Jane did not because she was staring at me sadly and her expression didn't change when I ordered a stoli and grapefruit juice. She accepted this and ordered a glass of the house vingir. We touched hands across the table. Her eyes wandered away and out the window. It was cold and Main Street storefronts were darkened and a traffic light swung above an empty intersection flashing a yellow light. We were both less stern. We'd become simplified, anchored. Nothing was shifting or panicked between the two of us, and we wanted to be tender with each other. And now, Dolly Parton's I Will Always Love You, the final song in the movie is playing, so... Oh, boy. how many? I've only got another page of this, so let's just get into it. Well, I'm up for this Harrison Ford thing, and they might want to meet this week, I paused, in L.A., I think that's great, Jane said. Though I wasn't surprised by her enthusiasm, I said. Really? Yeah. You should definitely think about it. It would only be for a day or two, I said. 
Good. I hope you do it. Suddenly I asked, Why do you stay with me? Because, she sighed, Because I get you, I guess. Yet all I do is disappoint you, I muttered guiltily. All I do is disappoint everybody. You have potential, she stopped. The unspecific comment was transformed into something else by her tenderness. There was a time when you made me laugh and you were kind, and I believe that will happen again. She lowered her head and didn't look up for a long time. You're acting like this is the end of the world, I said softly. The waiter came with our drinks. He pretended to recognize Jane only now and grinned widely at her. She acknowledged this and offered a sad smile. He warned us that the kitchen would be closing soon, but this didn't really register. I noticed people slipping away from the bar. There was a whirlpool in the center of the dining room. After Jane sipped her wine, she let go of my hand and asked, Why didn't we work on this more? I mean, in the beginning, before we broke up. I don't know. It was the only answer I could come up with. We were too young? Could could that have been it? You never trusted my feelings. I don't think you ever really believed I liked you. That's not true at all, I said. I did. I didn't know that. I, I just I wasn't ready. And you are now? After one particularly volatile therapy session? On the volatility scale, I would say that was only about a seven. And then, after we both tried to smile, I said, Maybe you never really understood me. You say that you did, but maybe you didn't. Not really. Maybe not enough to resolve anything. That was probably my fault. I was just this hidden person who made it so impossible to resolve anything, she finished the sentence. I want to now. I want to make things work out. And my foot found hers underneath the table. And then I had a flash. Jane standing a alone over a grave in a charred field at dusk, and this image forced me to admit, You're right about something. What? I'm afraid of being alone. I'm afraid of losing you and and Robbie and Sarah. I tensed when I said, Don't go, even though this wasn't meant literally. And on that note, I must leave good people, good listeners, good readers, good writers, bad writers too. I don't know that there are bad listeners, but I sure hope there are. This has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Podcast. Happy reading, happy writing. Stay off the message boards, you conniving little trolls. Bye.